0: All can be seated just while everybody's being settled i do want to uh to mention we have an opportunity to minister to the the church in U- in the ukraine and i know there's probably all kinds of stuff going on but we have a specific opportunity through someone we trust through erin Shervenak. uh there's a pastor that she knows of in new york that is in contact with believers and specific pastors there in the ukraine if you would like to give an offering there there locally where where aaron is in new york they're going to be uh they're going to be collecting supplies and try to get supplies and foods and canned goods and things like that to them Uh, it's not really feasible for us to do that but if you would like to give an offering we are sure that it will get to the right people it'll get to aaron and her organization, Open Air Campaigners, and their pastors in the Ukraine, it's going to go in a VMO account directly to them. So we're sure that they will get it. Um, if you would like to give an offering, you can do that tonight. I think we kind of have a deadline. If you you know if you want to drop something offering play tonight, just make a notation of the check or the tithing envelope that this is for the Ukrainian church, and and it will get to them. And so. Um, It's a blessing to be able to give. You know what I mean? It's a blessing to be able to give to support others. It could be us one day that are in need. Amen? And uh, it's just, uh, I thank God for that. It is, we've been studying in Philippians how the church in Philippi ministered to Paul's needs, right? They sent Epaphroditus all the way to him to bring a gift and an offering, which was a sweet smell and savor. him and it blessed them not only the material blessing but the fact that they loved him enough and cared enough to do that and uh it is something special it's not just blindly throwing money down the drain it's not uh it would be sowing into something that's eternal as as god leads you i'm just going to leave it with you at that if you if you make a note on your check that it's for the ukrainian church we will make sure that it gets to them as soon as possible Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning there and before we start, I think it's so far already it's been a wonderful uh, study. I know the Lord has ministered to me through his word and uh, this epistle. Last week, we ended our, a week ago tonight, we ended our time of prayer and fasting. We had the Lord's Supper together. It was a wonderful uh, three and a half days of of prayer and fasting. But we're going to get back to our study uh, in Philippians tonight. So turn with me to chapter 3, and we're going to start reading. We covered 1 through 3 last week, but I want to read 3 through 6 tonight, and we should get through the 6th verse tonight. So Philippians 3, 3, if you would read with me. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That is a key, key phrase, okay? Uh, we have no confidence in the flesh at all. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of the Pharisee, of touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. We're going to stop there because I don't want to go to the next passage. Uh, It's just all going to go together next week. Lord willing, if we're not raptured, we'll get into uh, verses 7 and 8. He counts those things that were behind him, that all of his attainments in Judaism, he counts it as dung literally as, as fertilizer, as horse manure, okay? And uh, he came to realize when he met Jesus Christ, and we're going to kind of start with this and end with this tonight, when Saul of Tarsus met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, his life was forever changed. He came to an end of himself that day. He wasn't perfect that day, but he was saved that day. He came to know the Lord And he came to, at that point, and I would say increasingly more in his walk with Christ, to realize there was no confidence. He had no confidence in his flesh. He had no, uh, uh, like he wrote in Romans, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. He came to really understand that, not just in a doctrinal statement, to really, to see that. I think it's important for somebody to come to Christ and to realize that, and then to walk with Christ, and then have our eyes opened even more? There's a true story I heard—an illustration of um, the naval base in San Francisco. There was a an officer there, and they were having a revival service or a church service on the at the, at the military base in the chapel, and um, they had a guest minister come in and preach to the soldiers there. And the officer was just kind of watching all that was going on, and there was one particular soldier that was very much touched by the Lord. He was at the altar, he was crying and weeping and wailing and crying out to God for mercy and asking for forgiveness and salvation and the the uh, The officer went up to him and said, "Get a hold of yourself you know this this is no way for for you to act and so forth, and uh you know get up and you know wipe your face and and get a hold of yourself." And so he was <clears throat> he was just really bothered that one of his soldiers would act that that way, uh, I guess you would say in public and so later that day this this officer was riding on a streetcar in San Francisco, and there was a man that was getting on the streetcar at one of the stops, and he had to be helped on because he he didn't have any legs, his legs were amputated below the waist, and so people had to help him get on and he sat down in one of the seats there and this officer all of a sudden got moved with pity, and he said to himself, he said, oh, that's pitiful, this, this man doesn't have a leg to stand on, literally doesn't have a leg to stand on. And God smote his heart, and he says, you know, you don't either. You ought not to be talking to the other soldier, you should have been down there with him. You don't have a leg to stand on either. Not in God's eyes, not in God's sight. The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only goodness that we have is the goodness of God. The only way we're justified is to be justified freely by his grace. And so Paul didn't know this when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was blinded, okay? He came to know it, and then he came to know it increasingly more. If you don't know it, you need to know it. If you don't know that it's only by the grace of God, and that's not just a doctrinal statement, if it's a truth for your life, by the grace of God, we are what we are. Amen? And we have no confidence in anything that we've done. So what does he say? We, we, we are those, at the end of verse 3, true circumcision. We're the true Jew, not just Jewish in the sense of heritage, but even Gentiles are Jews in the sense of a true Jew is one that's one inwardly that has trusted in Christ, trusted in God by faith. That's what he means by that. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Not a little bit, not somewhat. We have no confidence in the flesh. Well, what does that mean? He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And basically he's saying in verse 4, look, if anybody, and, and I think you could stack him up in his life against anybody's, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh before the Lord, and say, I have done this, I have attained this, I am righteous, I have served God more fervently, I have whatever that you want to put the eyes. If anybody could have done that in this life, it would have been Paul. I mean, my life doesn't compare, your life doesn't compare to what he did thinking he was serving God. If anyone could have trusted in their own flesh, and their own righteousness, and their own works, in their own, quote, goodness, to count something for them as a right standing before God, it would have been Paul. But the fact of the matter is, and I know that we know it, that there is no one that has any right standing of their own before the Lord. Think about it. If anybody could have a right standing before God and be truly in God's eyes where he says, that's a good one. That's a righteous one. If anybody could, then it would have been pointless for Jesus to come and become flesh and hang on a cross and bear the sins of the world. But it wasn't pointless. It was needed. It was necessary. Amen. I'll just read this. If you're taking notes, this is going to be a good little study just about uh, just that simple thought. Not justified by the works of the flesh and the law and so forth. But Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is not justified. Now we have to be Justified. Before God, but knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but how? By faith. This is consistent in the Old Testament. This is consistent in Romans. This is consistent in Galatians. This is consistent here in uh, Philippians, what we're studying. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay? And again, in, in Romans, I want to read this. For what sayeth the Scriptures? Now, he's quoting from Genesis in God's dealings with, with Abraham. What sayeth the Scriptures? Romans 4, 3, and then verse 5. Abraham believed God. That's faith, right? And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And we've talked about that, that God, that, that counted means he's imputed. It's imputed to us or imparted to us. God imputed true righteousness to the man Abraham, not by works. and not by, The law wasn't even existent yet, not the law of Moses, okay. Um, but he says Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him by God for righteousness, true righteousness that God accepted. Abraham's in heaven today. Even though he came and lived and died many years before Jesus ever came, he was justified by faith. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. These are s- profound truths, but they're simple truths, and we ought not be confused about it. So this is not a message tonight about where well, do works come into play. Works have come into a big To play a big part in the life of a Christian. Uh, Our works display the reality of our faith in God and the reality of the new life we have in Jesus, and God's called us to work and to serve. But it does not come into play in fitting us for heaven or justifying us or earning our way to heaven by what we've done. Never, never, never. It's not possible. It is not possible to earn our way to heaven by our innate goodness. Uh, religiousness, uh, service, anything, anything, discipline, nothing. And so really Paul's going to give a testimony in the next couple of verses that we're looking at tonight, his before Christ testimony. Everybody in here, now some of you might have been saved as children very young and didn't have a lot of time to, to do a lot of sinning, but you were in need of a Savior even so. But some of us lived quite a while and lived in the world, and lived in sin, and lived apart from Christ before coming to Christ. And we have a pretty extensive BC before Christ's testimony. I have one, and I thank God for his mercy. And many of you in here have one. But he's he's going to talk about, now he's no longer this way, by the time he's writing this, he's the Apostle Paul, saved by the grace of God. But what he's referring back to is, I guess you would say the pride of, he had pride in several different areas. Pride of his ancestry, pride of his orthodoxy, pride of his activity, and pride of his morality. He was, and he's going to talk about those in the next few verses. So let's just jump in. Paul's before Christ, when he was Saul, testimony and accomplishments and heritage, and none of this It would be easy to sit here knowing what we know as modern-day Christians and knowing the Bible to mock and ridicule all this. I don't see that. I don't see there's a place for that. I don't think there's a need for that. He was lost. He believed he was serving God. He was lost, and he was following the tradition of his fathers and elders and, and so forth and the heritage of his country. He was wrong, okay, dead wrong. He's not, we're not pretending that he was halfway saved or anything like that. He was lost, and he was completely lost, okay? But it's not to be mocked the life that he lived before. Because he, at least we know for him for sure, in the sincerity of his heart, as sin-filled and dark as it was, he thought he was serving God. You have to keep that in mind. So it's not to be ridiculed. But at the same time, none of those accomplishments which we're about to look at None of it justified him, and none of it justifies an ungodly person in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? The Bible says, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, Romans 3, that he may be just, who? Him. That he may be just, and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. That's it. Men and women and Jews and Gentiles and religious and irreligious and rich and poor, all are justified not by their own merits not by their own works not by their own goodness all are justified only and freely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ for by grace are you saved through faith grace and faith it is the grace of God It is our faith responding to the truth he reveals to us about himself and about ourselves. And we fall before the Lord like that soldier at the altar. And we wail and blubber in sincerity and say, God, I'm undone like Isaiah. I'm undone. There's nothing redeemable in me. Not in me. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And so we're all... Jews or Gentiles, whoever are justified only and freely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look at Paul's B.C. testimony. If anybody could have had a right standing based on their own merits, it would have been Paul. I would have voted for Paul. If anybody's going on their own, it's Paul. If I'd have lived in that day and thought along those lines. So let's look at in verse 5. What does he start out with? Circumcised the eighth day. We say, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that was that was a Jewish law, the eighth day for the males to be circumcised. Jesus Christ, it says in Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, was circumcised the eighth day. So again, we're not mocking or ridiculing. Jesus was circumcised the eighth day. His parents brought him to the, to the temple to do after the manner of the custom of the Jews, and, and he was brought. And, and he was circumcised. So Paul's saying, I was circumcised the eighth day. This is inter- interesting. The Ishmaelites, you know how Abraham and Ishmael first and through, through his handmaid. And then the pro- promised child, which was Isaac. But the Ishmaelites were circumcised at the age of 13 years old. The Hebrews at eight days old. And that's what God gave in Leviticus 12.3. Proselytes or somebody that was converted to Judaism would be uh, a male would be circumcised whenever they had thoroughly converted to Judaism, whatever age that was. But he's saying, I was circumcised the eighth day. In other words, he's saying, legally, I did it by the law the way it's supposed to be. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 2 of the stock of Israel. Stock is simply the true lineage, okay, true Jewish heritage, and so forth. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. These things might not mean a lot to us. We're not Jewish. We're not Hebrew, okay? But Benjamin was a tribe that was very highly highly spoken of in the Bible. Benjamin was an aristocracy. Benjamin was where the first king, Saul, came from, although he turned from the Lord and got filled with pride, and God had to take the kingdom from him, that still was, uh, people were proud to be of the tribe of Benjamin, okay? And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, there was no Gentile blood in him. As far back as he traced, he was pure in the sense of, of being Jewish. Jewish, literally Jewish Hebrew uh, ancestry, Okay. He was from Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. But so that, again, might not mean much to us. This was a very noble city. This was a city where uh, where people were highly educated. Saul was highly educated. Saul studied. There's at least two verses we know where he studied under one of the greatest teachers of his day of the Jewish law, Gamaliel. Okay? You could read about it in Acts chapter 22.3 when he's given his testimony. He talks about it. So, Here's Saul. Everything is kosher, so to speak. Everything down the line. His bloodline, his pedigree, okay? When he was circumcised, who he studied under, even the city he was from, the tribe he was from, and everything. And let's keep going. It's touching the law. What was he? A Pharisee. Well, we know they were scribes. There were Pharisees. There were Sadducees. The scribes would have been the absolute most... Uh, devoted and adherent to the letter of the law. I'm sorry, the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been the most adherent to every detail of the law. It's easy to laugh and say, oh, they, they washed their hands, you know, before they ate, and, and we laugh at it. We kind of ridicule it all. But the Pharisees believed in the most strict observance of the law. So Paul's saying that's what I was, and when he gave his testimony later, uh, I think before King Agrippa, and he testified before King Agrippa as a believer, he said, "I was brought up in the straightest or strictest sect of the Pharisees. I mean, I was, I was among the Pharisees who are already strict. I was in the most strict sect of the Pharisees. All right, and they observed the law to the most minute." detail. That's what he's saying. Okay, now we have the the benefit of seeing it from the outside and seeing the whole gospel in Jesus and how wrong he was and all that, but he was living in it. Okay, and until his eyes were open, they were closed. That makes sense? He He walked in that, but he walked in it in his error. He walked in it completely, if that makes sense, thinking all the while, I'm serving the God of my father's. So just again, keep that in mind. I want you to turn with me. This is worth looking at. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter twenty-three. There's a lot of scriptures that we could read, and there's a lot of. Run-ins, I guess you would say, are confrontations that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Sometimes he would initiate them. Sometimes the Pharisees would come asking him questions, tempting him. Sometimes they picked up stones to, throw, you know, to stone him, and he passed through. He had a lot of dealing, dealings and run-ins with the Pharisees. They're given there. They're highlighted there in the Bible for us to see. I just want to read a few verses. So read with me Matthew 23, 1 through 3, and then we'll skip down. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, now listen. This important what he says here. All there, what all therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. So Jesus is literally saying. What those Pharisees teach you from the law of Moses as they sit in the seat of Moses in that place of authority, you do it. You do what they're telling you to do from the law of Moses. He doesn't say blow them off, they're stupid. He calls them hypocrites. He says that they're wrong. Hypocrite literally in the Greek is an actor pretending to be. and And we have so many examples in the Gospels. Jesus said they pray to be seen of men, they give tithes and offerings to be seen of men, and they blow their trumpets, and everything was to be seen of men. They were hypocritical, okay? But what they were preaching as far as from the law, Jesus said, you observe it and you do it. That might catch some people off guard. But this is what the Lord said. Don't do after their works, When they teach you something from the Ten Commandments, okay, about keep the Sabbath, you keep the Sabbath, but don't do after their works. Don't follow them as a pattern. Why? Because they say and do not, skip down to verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen of men, and they did a lot of works. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. The phylacteries and the, the borders of their garments had to do with the, the royal, the priestly apparel that God gave through Moses to them. They were supposed to wear that. If they were really a priest? They were supposed to wear that. That was an obedience to God. But what did they do? They always had to take it to make some kind of show. They always had to come miss the heart of it and take it to an outward display. And This was one of their greatest sins and hypocrisies. What is a phylactery? A phylactery is a little um, piece of parchment. And on it was written part of, of the, the law, okay, for time's sake. And it was framed in a little frame and sometimes rolled up in a little cylinder. And they would literally put their phylactery, which had part of the, the law of God on it, and they would, they would make it big. And they, lit, they wore it in their foreheads. They're only supposed to wear it when they went to pray. But they evidently started wearing it everywhere. And they made them bigger where people could see that's a priest. They literally wore them on their foreheads. They were with leather straps strapped to their heads and on the back of their right hand. Okay? You know in Deuteronomy when the Lord says that uh, write the law of God above your doorpost and, you know, teach it to your children when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night and so forth. And on your, they, they took that to a literal to a literal sense of writing it on their forehead. They didn't observe it. How do we know they didn't observe it? Because Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. They didn't observe it because if they'd have known Abraham, they would have known Jesus and rejoiced to see his day. If they'd have known God, they would have known Jesus. We know that they didn't keep the commandments, okay? They weren't justified by faith. In fact, the Bible says, where did Israel miss, it, miss out? Paul says in Romans, because they sought, sought it not by faith. It wasn't what they were doing was wrong and and striving to keep the law. It was that they didn't seek to the law by faith. They didn't realize their own ineptitude, their own inadequacy, their own sin. They just said, we've got the law, we've got the commandments, we keep them, we do them. If if, If I break one, I offer the offering that I'm supposed to offer. And we keep trucking along and there was no heart change for the most part. Moses' heart was changed. Joshua's heart was changed, Samuel's heart was changed, David's heart was changed, Isaiah's heart was changed, Daniel's heart was changed. People were Jewish that came to know the Lord, but they were justified by faith. And they didn't despise the law, they kept the law, but they kept it, as it were, by faith. They say, he says, don't do like these Pharisees do. Now, I'm saying all this because Paul was a Pharisee. And if he could've, anybody could have boasted, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. Okay, but he says they say and do not. Let's read a couple more verses. Verse 13, Matthew 23. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Listen how he's blasting them, and, and it's because they deserved it. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They were actually a hindrance, blocking people from coming to know the Lord. Now, every man's responsible for their own soul and salvation. But the work that they were doing and their hypocrisy was actually serving to keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. Let's read a few more. Verse 27 and 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, this whole chapter is he's doing this. For ye are like unto whited sepulchers, that's a tomb or a grave, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity and sin. Well, so was Mary Magdalene full of iniquity and uncleanness. But she came to Christ and got saved and got forgiven. There has to be a humility and a brokenness. And by the way, some Pharisees did get saved. Saul of Tarsus is one that did. He's merciful to sinners. The religious sinner and the irreligious sinner. He's merciful. Two more scriptures here in this chapter. Verses 32 and 33. Wherefore ye, uh, I'm sorry. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Now, this is what Saul, at the time he was Saul and lost, would have boasted in. And that's how blind he was, because this is what Jesus is actually saying about these hypocritical Pharisees, how they lived, okay? The problem was not that the law was given to them. The problem was their own sinfulness. Paul said, is there unrighteousness with the law? God forbid. He said, I am unclean. I'm sold under sin. The problem is me. That's in Romans chapter 7. We don't have time to read it there. But uh, so we see this. Let's let's go back to Philippians. So that was just a good, quick little snapshot of the Pharisees, okay? Verse 6, concerning, Philippians 3, 6, concerning zeal, kind of zeal that I have, He answers it, persecuting the church, okay? Paul was actually admired and made progress within the ranks of Judaism because of his zeal to persecute the church. Many scholars think, we know he was in attendance, but many people think he was the ringleader when Stephen, the first martyr that we read of in the New Testament, was killed. We know he was there. We know he was present and consenting, to Stephen's death at the hands of the Jews. The unbelieving, pride, the hypocritical Jews. Stephen was a Jew as well, okay? But he was dying. Many think he would, that Saul of Tarsus was the ringleader. One described him as he was a relentless, conscientious, persistent persecutor of the church. Okay? Relentless persecutor of the church. And so I want to read this from Acts 3 just for time's sake. As for Saul, this is when he was Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. This was a time of dispersion, this was a time of persecution of great persecution and it was directly at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. He had soldiers working with him and for him he had letters and authorities so he's going with the authority and the backing of of the Jewish hierarchy and he is their spearhead. He is the man and he's very good at what he's doing. He's making havoc of the church. God turned it around because everywhere the church was scattered by persecution, the the blood of Jesus so to speak was was spread, the gospel was spread. And I know you've heard it before, but it's a good example. If you got a campfire and you got some red hot coals and a bunch of them still there, Best thing to do if you want to put it out is throw water on it or, or, you know, totally cover it in dirt. But just to get a stick and start beating on it is probably not the best idea. If you get start beating on red-hot embers of cold and the sparks start flying and the embers start going, and before you know it, you've got a forest fire. But the intent was to, to beat it out and to put it out. But that's what Satan says, I'm going to stomp it out. And he used Saul, and Saul went along with it thinking he's serving God, persecutes the church, and the church ends up growing rapidly and spreading to other parts of the world faster than it would have otherwise. Amen? Because everywhere they went, they pre- the persecuted church brought Christ and brought the gospel with them. So, um, he, again, he actually thought that the followers of Jesus, the followers of this way, as they were called, were heretics and they were enemies of Christ. Was he right? No, he was dead wrong. 180 degrees, 100% wrong, okay? But he thought he was serving God by eradicating the church. So, uh, and then as touching the law, he says, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which in the law, Into verse 6, blameless, okay? Blameless. And so I want to talk about nobody could have stood back that knew anything about Saul of Tarsus and watched him. You could say he's lost. You can say everything you wanted to, but about him, but you could not have said he was—he didn't follow the law of his fathers. He is saying, "I really, really kept it." And by doing that, it doesn't mean he never sinned or even thought he sinned. If he thought he broke the law, then he would offer the offering that was required under the law. You understand what I'm saying? And so, so he—he he kept it. He kept it. So he says. Uh, touching, as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, okay? This, this, these last two verses, this is Saul of Tarsus, okay? This was Saul uh, that would have been in the Jewish sense above reproach, okay? When it came to his devotion to the religion of his fathers, the way he was taught it and the way he was brought up under it. Totally lost, totally outside of Christ, and God saved him by his grace. But I want to cl- talk about this before we bring it to a close. When he says it's touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I do want to say this from the Bible, and we're going to look at a, a key passage in just a moment. There is a righteousness in the law. There is a righteousness in the law. It is not the righteousness of Christ. It is not the righteousness of faith. It is not the righteousness by which a man can be justified before God. It is not a righteousness which fits a man for heaven and justifies the ungodly and washes our sins away. Our own righteousness is a filthy rags. But the Bible says there is a righteousness in the law. It holds up its own standards and then people meet those standards. You understand what I'm saying? At least in the outward observance. But that righteousness is not a true righteousness before God. It does not save anybody. It does not justify the ungodly. Period. Period. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was Paul or Peter. Forgive me because I hadn't planned on using this scripture. But maybe it was Stephen when he was preaching. He says, your fathers had the law and have not kept it. Nobody kept it. Possibly, Nobody kept it perfectly. It's impossible. It was impossible. And one of the reasons God gave the law was to show that very fact. You can't keep it. The law itself wasn't wicked or evil. The law was good and holy and just and spiritual. That's what it says in Romans 7. But they couldn't keep it. But there is a righteousness of the law, but it's not a saving righteousness. It's not a true righteousness of God. The law of Moses, and I'll tell you this just real quickly. If you, if you would like to know more about this and study this, I think it was last year or the year before. I believe I preached like a series. It was either five or seven sermons on the law. I mean, Sunday mornings, five or seven, six or seven in a row on the law and really dug into it. But I can tell you this from the Bible, from the Scriptures, that God gave the law of Moses. Now, a lot of people lived 1,500 years, I think, before the law was ever given, including Enoch and Noah, Abraham. They were justified by faith. People that lived during the dispensation of the law were justified by faith. People that have lived since the law and since Jesus fulfilled it were justified by faith. It's always been consistent. The law was given by God to show a few things to demonstrate to men. He chose Israel, and He chose to, to that to them pertains the law and the covenants and so forth. And He chose Moses to be the lawgiver. The law was given to show the holiness of God. The law was given to show the sinfulness of men, and the law was given to show man's great need to be justified by faith, justified by faith. And so quickly, if you started functioning under this law and said, this is how I'm going to get to heaven, you would quickly realize I can't keep it. They would quickly realize they can't keep it. So God in his mercy gave animal sacrifices that would make an atonement or covering for their sin. But the, the animal sacrifices, we're told in Hebrews, could never take away the sin. Never wash the man clean from it. David had to know that. Sacrifice and burn offerings thou wouldest not. Right? If you wanted another burnt offering for my sin, I would give it. Else I would give it. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. He wrote that when he's confessing all his sin to God. You know what he's saying? And he loved the law. He said, I can't keep it. I, need, I don't need an animal sacrifice. I need the grace of God. I need the mercy of God. I need a heart change. I need to wash my heart. Wash me and make me clean, and I'll be clean. I confess my sins to God, and he forgave us all the iniquity of my heart. You understand what I'm saying? He loved the law and lived under it. He didn't despise the law, but he realized the law was a good teacher for him. He understood the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and that he needed a savior. And everything, all the types and shadows of the tabernacle and the blood sacrifices and the brazen altar and the altar of incense and the golden candlestick and the showbread and the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubims and the mercy seat. All that pictures Christ. All of it pictures Christ. All of it pictures Christ. Every single thing. So if you followed the law by faith to its conclusion that God intends it would bring you to Christ. The blame is not with the law. The blame is with hard-hearted, sinful men. They took the law, and they made a god out of it almost. They made an idol out of it. And Plus, the Hebrews, the, the, the strictest Jews, they made, they added, I don't know how many, but they added a lot of laws and stipulations of their own that God never gave them. He says, you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. I never gave you that commandment. But they had piled it on and they just taught it right right along with the law of Moses. It was their own invention and their own way to control or to have power. And God never gave it. That fault was not with the law. And so uh, let's read this and we're going to bring this to a close. Matthew chapter 5. This part of the Sermon on the Mount. Look what Jesus says about the law. just in part anyway. Look at verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let me ask you this. If it was wicked and evil like idolatry or something like that in and of itself, just the law, not what men made of the law, if the law itself was wicked and evil, he would have come to destroy it. The law, again, this is Quoted from Romans chapter 7, the law is good and just and holy and spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I've not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. He, com- he fulfilled it and thereby abolished it. Finally, someone came who could perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements, not all the added little stuff, but who could genuinely fulfill before the Father the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus himself, by himself, in this earthly life, fulfilled it. By so doing, he put an end to it, and he ushered in a new covenant in his blood. Okay? That, that will suffice for tonight. Let's keep reading. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled all the law, all the prophets wrote about him, all righteousness. He fulfilled it personally by himself. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall go, whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, there is a righteousness to the law. Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. They would have probably been amazed by that. Wow, they're so. those Pharisees are so righteous and holy, and look at their phylacteries, and look at the border of their garments, and look how they pray. I can't pray nearly like that. And, And they're thinking along those lines, my righteousness has to exceed that, yes. What does that do? It makes us cry out in desperation and say, I'm undone. I'm not even going to try to be righteous. I'm not even close to that. I don't have the education of those Pharisees. I don't have the upbringing. I I couldn't possibly do that. I'm a petty thief. I've been stealing all my life, whatever. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Well, it's only by the righteousness of Christ. It's only by the blood of Jesus. That was what he was trying to get them to see. He's not bashing the law. The law never saved anybody. Not one person was ever justified by the law. Never. Not in the history of this planet was anyone ever justified before God by the law. Nor could they ever have been. It was impossible. We're justified by faith. That's how man's justified. And so after this, I'll close with this. Saul of Tarsus—that was the BC Saul that we looked at tonight. Next week we're going to look more at the AD Saul after he's met the Lord and walked with the Lord and what a change of heart and mind. But he never—he never boasted anymore. We don't see him ever boasting or bragging on those things once he comes to Christ. says, if I could have boasted, if I, this is what I would have boasted in, and it would have been pretty impressive. But I'm not boasting. What does it say in Galatians? But God forbid that I should glory or boast, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Amen? He, he lived and died from that Damascus Road conversion until he died. He, he lived as a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was martyred for the Lord. He was beheaded specifically for his testimony for the Lord and counted himself uh, humble and unworthy to even die for the Lord like that. I'm going to close with one scripture. D, you can come up. If you have your Bibles and want to read, uh, let's just read this quickly. In Acts chapter 9, verse 13. He was never the same after the Lord saved him. No confidence in the flesh. Acts 9... Verses 13 through 16. Then Ananias, this is when the Lord told Ananias, there's a man named Saul, I want you to go pray for him that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things of this man, how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem, your saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He would never be the same again. His his burden, his prayer and burden, it says in Romans 10, was for Israel to be saved. And he ends up dying for the Lord. He was a changed man. So we'll look at that change more next week. And the change took place in his heart. He was a changed man from his heart. Amen. Y'all stand with me tonight.